All right, it's 7 o'clock. We are in 1 Corinthians 7, which is, by verses, it is the longest chapter, but maybe or maybe not necessarily the longest chapter that it'll take me to get through. It depends. I've, I've been working on chapter 10 this week, and that's a pretty thick chapter too, so... We'll see. It's not as long, but it's thick. Anyway, it's a new topic. Uh, It starts off on marriage, and then it sort of meanders a little bit, and then comes back to marriage at the end, but it's mostly about marriage, chapter 7 is. So, uh, the first nine verses. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so remember, 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And so... Um, there's been this exchange of letters and now Paul is writing back about some of the things that they wrote to him about. So he says, concerning those matters, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Just waiting for an amen in case somebody wanted to. All right. Uh, But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Husband should give to his wife... her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I don't know how to stress this any more than, than I can, but that is what he just wrote in there is absolutely jaw-dropping in their culture. They were blown up by that. Okay. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single, but each has his own gift from God, one 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 kind and one of another, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, there's a lot here uh, in these first nine verses, and I just want to mention right out of the gate that um, I think one of the things that churches have done historically poorly in the last 40 or 50 years is uh, de-emphasize singleness at the, at the expense of elevating marriage as kind of the first-class citizen status, as if you're married. Um, I remember uh, when I was pastoring at Paradise Valley Community Church, every Sunday morning I had a certain route that I would run and, and it always took me by uh, this high school that had a new church that was meeting there. And they, th- their thing was, they had a banner out that said, blah, 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 church, a great place for families. And I, every time I ran by that on Sunday morning, I, I was thinking, if I were a single person, that's the last church I would go to. You know, because apparently you have to be part of a family to be a part of this church. And the church is actually a family for everybody. So it's one of the reasons why we've had, um, over the years, we've had uh, all of life uh, interviews with single people talking about their role in the church and how important it is and all of that. Uh, And so I, I just wanted to say that and to say that it's backed up by scripture here, that we can get so far off track with what our preferences or our proclivities are that we forget that Paul speaks to this uh, to the Corinthians. He says, in fact, he says, I wish everybody was like me. And we'll explain why he says that in a few minutes. But he says, it would be better really for the church if there were more single people, to be honest with you. But he also says that the issue becomes sex because people burn with passion. And so if you're going to burn with passion, it's best that you... um, I was going to say hook up, but that probably doesn't work anymore in our culture. (laughs) Uh, But you should get married. Okay, so here's the other issue, though. If we look in in, uh, 
Uh, in the creation story, we recognize that God is the one who created sex, and so without sin, it's really good. And it's good even in the midst of sin, but it's been perverted so much by sin. But God created sex. It's his gift to us, and we should honor it. Paul David Tripp has written a book about it. Uh, he's a Christian theologian and pastor, and, and he says that in, in some respects, uh, sexual congress with your spouse is actually, for Christians, is actually a, an act of worship. Okay, so it, it's, it's something that honors, it's something that's good. Um, Tom Schrader used to say of sex, because Schrader had, he's our founding pastor, by the way, uh, his background is he was raised uh, Catholic and went to Catholic grade school, high school, and college all the way through. Um, so he said that he was 30 years old and still had never read the Bible, but he was, he was a good Catholic. Uh, he, that's him speaking, not me. That's just what he would say. But, but uh, he said that uh, once he came to Christ and began to actually read the Bible, he began to realize that the, the Catholic Church was wrong in his perception of how it was taught, how sex how sex was taught. You guys that came in at right, just the right time. <laughs> We've got that figured out. Okay, good. <laughs> That's really good. You guys can, if it's easier, you can pull out some of those chairs too if you want. So, But um, he said, I, what I discovered was that God created sex and sex is good. So sex is not just for procreation, but it's also for recreation in the right uh, context. And Paul even writes, do not deprive one another. Do not, do not use sex as a weapon. If you're married, this is part of the deal of being married. And uh, Paul, uh, Tom also used to talk about how where Paul says in there, um, uh, don't deprive one another unless, of course, it's for a period of time when you're going to be praying. And if you read the commentaries in there, you realize that praying and fasting would go together. And so Tom used to say things like, you know, if your spouse says, uh, no, not tonight, I'm praying, and then you find a Twinkie in the bed, well, then you got a problem because they're also not fasting. Anyway, I'm just giving you some of the old trader stuff on this. But the, the sexual part of marriage is also a big part. It's not the only part. People get this wrong, too. It's, it's a big part, but not the only part of the idea of two becoming one. Okay. So the first time that God uses that language is in Genesis chapter 2, verses, verse 24, where he says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, literally, inextricably knit together with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, sex is a part of that, but what God is also saying there in those verses about marriage is that they will become one also in terms of emotion and spiritual. It's not just sex. It is physical, but it's also sexually, uh, emotionally and and spiritually. And then you, you've heard me talk about this. I think I even talked about it last week. The two become one theology of the Bible. It's a huge deal in the Bible. It's, it, it's a theme that runs throughout scripture. It's not just about marriage. So many people think that that two become one the theology or idea or principle is only about marriage. It, God uses that picture throughout scripture. And in fact, it's why he talks about uh, Israel in the Old Testament committing adultery when they chase after false gods. Because in, his, in God's mind, Israel and God have become uh, one as well. Something else to, that I think is helpful to understand is that the verbs in verses 1 through 5 are all imperatives or commands. They're not indicative verbs. They're not just statements. They're, they're commands. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I like to do in this section, or maybe also I do this in, in Philippians chapter 5 as well, is I talk about how it is that husbands and wives love each other or should love each other that I think is helpful. And that's why I wrote it on the board. And I, and I want you all to know that I wrote all of that left-handed. I'm getting pretty good at it. Uh, it's not bad anyway. So it's better than it was uh, three weeks ago anyway. So in the Greco-Roman first century world, um, there were seven or eight words that were used to describe love, okay? 
And, and that fifth one, and I have two off on the side, and I'll explain why in a minute. The, the, the fifth one down, agape, is the one that in Christian context we probably know the best. Because that's, that's the word uh, that's used throughout the New Testament to describe not only God's love for us, but also how we're supposed to love one another as Christians. Um, that word in, in the ancient uh, first century Greek, Greco-Roman culture, Greek culture, that word was actually not used very much at all for love until Jesus and Paul started using it. So it was the New Testament that actually made agape an important word for love. Now you heard me, maybe it was two weeks ago, uh, on Sunday morning say, you know, we only have one word for love. I love Cheetos, I love Jackie, I love this church, I love the Blackhawks. They're all different kinds of loves. There's all these other... The, the Greco-Roman world had all these different words for love depending on the context. So the first one is eros. Anybody know what English word we get? I know James got, got it. He's got to know this. What English word do we get from eros? Erotic, yeah. Okay. So this is love that's rooted in beauty and sensuality. Okay. You are... Uh, physic here you go, you burn with passion for somebody. You're attracted to them in a way that you burn for, with passion. That's eros love. Uh, and and, and um, this love is rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. Okay, You see somebody else and you love them because in that respect they're worthy, you see that they're worthy of your love. Okay? Um, this word is also interesting because it's get, this will get a little technical, but I love this. I, I love helping to explain this. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, there's a book called the Song of Solomon. Have any of you ever read that book? Okay. If, if I taught that four years ago here in the fall on some Wednesday nights, Rachel, you came and sat in the back because it was really, really. I remember Jackie also sat in the back when she came because it was really. Saucy. Okay. If you understand the metaphors and the language that's being used in the Song of Solomon, I've said this before. There are two of the 66 books in the Bible that are not rated R, they're rated NC 17. And it's Judges for Violence and it's Song of Solomon for Sex. Okay. Um, in the second century BC, uh, when the lingua franca of the Mediterranean world, all the way around the Mediterranean, uh, moved from Semitic languages to primarily Greek. Uh, in in, in uh, Jerusalem, the Jewish religious professional people began to realize that their, their scriptures were written in ancient Hebrew and it was very difficult to communicate that to a culture that only spoke, that mostly only spoke Greek, okay? And so they got together and they said, we should translate the Old Testament into ancient Greek, into Koine Greek. And so they did. They, they got 70 priests together who were experts at uh, both languages and translation, 70. And they translated the Old Testament into ancient Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a Latin word for the number 70. Okay, it's, there's some wordplay there, but that's what it means. And it took them decades to do this, but... Um, a lot of preachers, occasionally I will do this too, uh, especially if I'm in the Old Testament, teaching out of the Old Testament, I'll go to the Septuagint to see how the, the priests translated the Old Testament into the Koine Greek. Sometimes it can give you some insight into what they thought that those passages meant. So anyway, in the Septuagint, in the Koine Greek, the Song of Solomon has that word eros all over it. That's the word that's used over and over and over and over again. It's a sensual book, okay? Then there's the word ludos. Ludos means a love that's rooted in entertainment, adventure, and excitement. So uh, I would describe this love as a love where you're in love, but you also have fun together. You, you like to do stuff together. You have affinity with your spouse. That makes sense? Okay. So, but again, it's like, I, I love Jackie in, in a Ludos way because I like to be with her. She's my best friend and 
we, we have fun doing things together. Uh, but again, it's a, a love that's rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. Then you have storge love, or as um, C.S. Lewis used to call it, storgi. That's, that's how he pronounced it. But storge love, that's, that's love that is uh, described as slow and peaceful and secure and traditional. Okay? And so, like when you guys got married very recently, you may have thought, well, we've got some storge love. Uh, but I don't know how much, but it's building now, the longer you're together. So Jackie and I have been together uh, 34 and a half years. Our storge love is really strong now. It's like we're just at peace with each other. It's still exciting to be with her, but it, we're at peace also. There's just this sense of deep, deep-rooted security that we have uh, with each other. Um, but again, it's a, it's a love that's rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. I, I have that with Jackie because she makes me feel that way. Okay? Then there's pragma. Anybody want to take a guess at what English word we get from pragma? Pragmatic. So pragmatic is a love for somebody because loving them is practical and utilitarian and useful. It makes sense. So uh, I, I like to say this. This is where... Uh, two people get together and it's this weird math where one plus one equals three. You're better together. You're more effective together. You're, you're better together than, than the sum of the parts apart from each other. And, but again, and so like Jackie and I, we, we work well together. We, we can finish each other's sentences now. We, we know without telling each other what each other needs and we, we do stuff for each other just on instinct. Um, and, but again, it's a love that's rooted in, in the worthiness of the one. I, I would never have that with anybody else. And it's because Jackie is who she is. It's a love that's rooted in um, the worthiness of the one being loved. Now I'll, I'll just mention these two on the side. Uh, Philia love, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, I'm pretty sure. Philia love is, is sibling love, kindred love, uh, DNA kind of love. It's, it's familial love. So that doesn't really apply here. In, in romantic marriage relationships. And then mania love is actually a, a really kind of a negative thing. Mania is a love that um, uh, vacillates between elation and depression. When you walk into a room, you're not exactly sure what you're gonna get from the person. Uh, are they angry at you because they love you so much or are they so, they're, they're so much in love with you that they smother you? Okay, it's kind of a uh, some people have described this as, as a uh, bipolar kind of love, okay? You don't really know what you're going to get. With, it's the only one that's kind of negative, okay? But then that last one down there in the bottom is agape love. So agape love is unconditional, selfless, compassionate love, okay? So this love is different than the other four. I would argue that marriage needs all five of these loves, to be a really great marriage. You can maybe survive for certain seasons without one or two of them, but ultimately you need all five of them to have a really full-throated, robust marriage. But agape is the one that you can't do without ever because it's the one that's not rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved, but it's rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. That's the one that says you're going to love even when they're unlovable. And if you've never been married before, can I just mention to you the reality that believe it or not, your spouse is not always going to be lovable. I know that's hard to believe because you're on eHarmony and you're on Christian Mingle and you're on I'm Desperate for anyone.com and they're promising you, they are promising you that they're gonna find your soulmate and they're always gonna be lovable and that's just a crock. I just wanted to let you know, okay? It's going to be hard and there's gonna be times when you have to love them um, because it's out of your character. And Jesus says, this is the love that you should have for others because this is how I've loved you. In Ephesians 5, uh, 25, where it says, where Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I know lots of husbands are hoping that it's eros love that Paul uses there, but he doesn't. He uses the word agape. And he does that because in the, in the, in the context in which Paul was writing about marriage, uh, wives weren't supposed to have any rights to love. 
Wives weren't, were second-class citizens, they were property. And so by him saying that to husbands, one of the most um, outlandish things that Paul writes in the letter to the church in Ephesus is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It was, just, it was, it was jaw-dropping, okay? So, just to go a little bit deeper, we live in a culture right now that believes that romantic relationships can be sustained by eros alone, not sustainable, doesn't work. Um, but there's some irony here too. You, you can't sustain the relationship with just the four, the top four, you need agape. But there is also a sense in which if you don't have eros, you also can't sustain the relationship. And the reason I say that is because I've been doing this now for more than 23 years and, and the, the number of Christian couples who are not having sexual congress with each other, and I'm not talking about people way, 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 way past their sexual prime. I'm talking about people in their sexual prime is quite disturbing. Again, Tom used to say all the time, uh, one of the biggest problems we face in the church today is the number of sexually active singles and the number of sexually celibate marrieds. And that's true. Uh, that's a challenge. And, and I, would, I, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of couples that are having problems and seeking pastoral counseling through their problems don't seem to realize that that may be one of their biggest problems. Because when that subject does come up in pastoral counseling, almost always the couples will say this. Yes, but as soon as we get these other issues sorted out, we'll start doing that again. And I'm like, you know, it's not going to solve these other issues, but I'll tell you what, it'll really help a lot if you would get that thing fired up again. You have no idea how important that is. Okay, some of you are getting really uncomfortable now. I just said fired up. So, all right. So, so that's, that's the, uh, the, the, the context of these loves and so, I, again, I would just argue, you need all five, uh, but you, you especially do need eros and agape in the marriage context, but for different reasons, and they're both really important. Now, again, just to reiterate, I got the other three going on with Jackie, too, and that's what makes our marriage, I think, really robust, is that we've got all five uh, really well. So, you also look at the, these nine verses, and you see the words touch and have and come together. All of those are euphemisms that Paul is using for sexual congress. And, and one other reason that this is important uh, in marriage is the temptation to sin. You know, there's, there's this constant um, barrage of propaganda that we all face all day long uh, in almost every context that we're in to stray from, uh, from our commitment with uh, our spouse. So the call on this, I understand, is very high, very high indeed, but it's our call in Christ. And, and here's, I said earlier, and I've said, I said it about Ephesians 5 as well, and I'm going to say it again now. This passage that Paul writes is jaw-dropping in their context. And, and I'll give you a little insight as to why. The, the, the New Testament scholar Bruce Winter, who's written a commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, writes this. It is not possible to find another reference in the literature of the ancient world which teaches that a husband surrenders his body exclusively to his wife upon marriage. You can't find this in any other literature in the ancient world. Okay? In fact, he writes, in the secular world, it was traditional on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute or with a woman of easy virtue, it was not a sign that he did not love his wife, but that he was simply gratifying his passions. The wife, however, gained no such privilege. That's how radical this is that Paul wrote. And he's writing this into a city where that was just the way things were. Men could go do whatever they wanted. And he's telling the men in the church, mm, mm, mm. but he's also saying, wives, you also now, because you've been elevated 
to this equal status, you also now have a responsibility that comes with those rights and the equal status as well. So you, you can see this idea of mutual submission now coming through as well. And again, I want to mention, every time I say mutual submission, I, I have to say this because I want to make sure people understand. Mutual is not a synonym for same. When we talk about mutual submission, it does not mean same submission. Jackie and I do not submit to each other in the same ways because each of us has different needs and different ways that we're going to submit to each other. So um, if you're trying to submit to somebody based on what you think your needs are, that you're going to work really hard for very little return, I think. You need to actually ask some questions. What is it that you need from me? And that, that really helps. Okay. Uh, and then, like I said, as I am, Paul means he's single there. Okay. Now, verses 10 and 11. I want to check time. I, the only thing I have that I can look at is uh, the word exit, which some of you are like, yeah, why don't you take advantage of that? Okay, so uh, let's see, 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, so what's he talking about here? So... Let me just mention, and this is interesting because when we do um, mer um, membership classes, which we're going to do in May, when we do membership classes here, um, three topics, we have, I don't know, 26 different uh, things that we talk about in our membership papers, 26 positions that we have, the Trinity and end times and all of that stuff. The three areas that people always want to talk about in the membership uh, class, people are not disturbed by our idea of the Trinity. They're not disturbed by the idea of uh, salvation is in Christ alone. The three areas they want to talk about is uh, divorce, uh, the theology of election, and church discipline. Those are the three areas we get all the questions on. And so on divorce, they, they want to know what is our position on divorce. And we believe that we have a biblical position on divorce. Divorce is not mandatory, but is biblical if uh, a spouse uh, commits adultery, if a, if a spouse uh, deserts or abandons, or a form of diversion, uh, um, desertion or abandonment would also be abuse, proved abuse in, in the marriage. So those are our, those are our positions on, on divorce from a biblical standpoint. Um, and, and here's the other thing we always say about this, context matters. So the other thing that we'll get is people will wanna pin us down by saying, all right, if so-and-so does this to their spouse, if, if a spouse does this to their spouse, are the elders gonna say it's a biblical divorce? And our answer is always, we don't know, we have to talk to the couple and get the context because every context is different and everybody's got a side to, a to the story. You know, my friend Bruce Brown always says, you know, a story is like a pancake. There's one side that's really big, and then there's another side that's really big, and then right in the middle is that thin little area where the truth lies, okay? And that's what you're trying to get to. So context mer it matters. And I just want to reiterate that we never, that divorce is never required, okay? Um, in fact, I've seen some amazing God stories where, um, spouses have committed adultery against their spouse and they've come back together and reconciled and the marriage is stronger than it ever was before. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. That's really hard. But I've seen really wonderful God stories of those kinds of things uh, happening. And then uh, 12 through 16, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved to the marriage, 
God has called you to peace, for how do you know, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So something we have to understand about this paragraph is that Paul is talking about marriages that occur before uh, one or both of the spouses become a Christian. Okay, so two non-believers get married, then one of them becomes a Christian. Okay, the Christian is not required to Sex, sex, sex. Okay. <laughs> How'd you know? The, the, Caleb just walked in too, so I got his attention. Um, the, the Christian uh, does not leave the marriage uh, because they're married to an unbeliever. Now, the non-believer might leave the marriage, certainly. I've seen that happen. Somebody comes to Christ and the non-believer freaks out and leaves the marriage. I've seen that happen a number of times. Okay, uh, But also what Paul is saying here is that if one becomes a Christian, it could become a witness. I mean, that's the basis for all the holy talk that Paul uses in this paragraph. He's not saying that people are automatically saved. He's, he's, um, it, it's, here's, what, here's how the scholars describe it. Sometimes there's what's known as a sanctifying influence, whereas the benefits of the marriage, uh, the benefits of the blessing, the blessings of Christ flow over to those who are in relationship with those who are in Christ. So it's called sanctifying influence. So I actually do have an illustration from somebody's marriage about this. So um, Tom and Susan Schrader got married and neither one of them were Christians. And um, they were both, they were both deeply devoted to a secular way of life and still got married. And um, Paul, uh, uh, I'd say Paul because there's a lot of things about Tom that remind me of the Apostle Paul. But uh, Tom, um, Tom was an alcoholic and he was out of control and blah, blah, blah. And Tom used to say that um, they got home from the honeymoon and they already were talking about divorce. Okay, that's how quickly that happened. And so uh, that was when, in March of 1980, uh, Tom decided to crash Larry Wright's Bible study that he could never seem to get an invite to. Everybody else was welcomed and invited, but nobody wanted to invite him because apparently they thought he was way beyond any possible salvation by Jesus. You know, so he just crashed Larry Wright's Bible study. And one thing, some of you have heard the story, one thing leads to another. Tom becomes a Christian and he starts kind of following around Larry. So he starts telling his wife Susan about Jesus. And, and Susan says, you realize that you have four pairs of running shoes in the closet that have never been used. Now, what's her point? Her point is, is that Tom has this track record of getting excited about something, going out and making a commitment to it, and then never going back to it again. So she's like, this is just a phase, it's just a fad. And then she began to realize, oh wow, he's really serious about this, and guess what? He's starting to be transformed. Uh, and then one night he um, has a problem with liquor and he wakes up the next morning and realizes that he has a problem with liquor because he's still sleeping in his suit and he's got um, potted plants in his suit pockets. So. <laughs> Um, so he literally prayed to God and he said, look, you need to fix this. Let's, let's just work on this. And that was the last time he ever had a drink. And, and so Susan begins to see these changes. And then next thing you know, Susan's like, all right, I'll go to church with you. So then she starts going to church with him. And the next thing you know, she, you know, God uses that to, to bring her to Christ. And so this idea of a sanctifying influence I've seen at work in, well, at least I've heard about it in Tom and Susan's um, marriage. And then finally, what's this verse 14 stuff about the kids? Again, there's that holy talk about uh, the kids. Uh, this is one instance in the Bible where the status of the children of one or more believers is actually discussed. It happens in a couple places. This is one of those instances. And this for centuries, for centuries, has been interpreted through the lens of either a collectivist or an individualistic culture, depending on what you live in. We are, 
in the United States a highly individualistic culture, so we tend to interpret that through an individualistic culture lens. Collectivist cultures believe that what Paul is saying there, it means that the children of believers are saved. Individualistic cultures believe that this means they have this sanctifying influence on them until they come to what's known as the, uh, what is it, the age of accountability. Have you ever heard that term before, the age of accountability? Okay. Now, we could spend the next two hours arguing and discussing the age of accountability. I don't really want to do that. But it's the idea that, here's another way of saying it. Um, Individualistic cultures believe that children are saved when they say, I want to be baptized. In other words, it's believer's baptism. Okay. It's It's not infant baptism. Okay. Um, taken with the rest of the New Testament teaching on salvation, I would believe that I, I would I would argue that there has to be this um, moment where you repent, where Jesus says, "Repent and be baptized." Where you repent, literally, you turn from um, uh, walking away from God. You turn from having faith in yourself, faith in the world, faith in your false gods, and you literally turn from that and you turn towards Jesus and embrace him and, 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 um, and, and say, I, I am now in Christ and I'm a believer in the gospel. And then out of what you might call obedience, you eventually get baptized. Baptism isn't salvific. Baptism is an outward testimony of the inward reality that's happened to you. But Jesus says, repent and then be baptized so that you can testify that you're with me. So I would argue that it is this idea of, of accountability but only after a certain age, I have no idea what that age is. I don't even know how you measure that. Uh, and so then one of the first questions that comes up is, um, so what happens to babies if they happen to die? Okay. So uh, personally, I strongly believe in God's grace in that. Um, and, and, I, and I fully admit that I've been influenced by um, <clears throat> John MacArthur's argument on this uh, issue. Some of you know who John MacArthur is, and his, he, he very strongly argues in, a, in a, an entire book about why he believes that God's grace covers children who wouldn't necessarily know any better. God's grace has covered infants. God's grace has covered those children that have been aborted. So, okay. Uh, 17 through 24, let me check time. I don't know if we're going to get through chapter 7 tonight. It's so, it'd be really great if we didn't, because it's been so exciting so far, isn't it? So, anyway, so 17 through 24. <clears throat> Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to, be, to remove the marks of circumcision. Anybody interested in what that means? Okay, that, that's actually a thing. I'll talk about it a little bit. Okay. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time call, uh, of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in his condition in which he was called to Christ. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, of course. For he who is called to the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is now a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let them remain with God. So this paragraph is actually primarily about class and ethnicity, which is weird because it's in the middle of this whole chapter on marriage. I know that's weird, but so why would that happen? Well, why is he talking about this? Several reasons. Number one, many in Corinth at this time were converting to Christianity as a way, a path, or a scheme to try to escape their present status and identity. So first of all, believe it or not, identity politics was a thing in the first century as well as now, okay? Um, Slaves or bond servants believed that their candidates made them, uh, their faith 
their faith made them candidates for release from their commitment as bondservants. So we've talked about this before. Being a bondservant in the first century was way different than what we would know of as, as slavery that was practicing in the United States in the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th uh, centuries. This was part of their economic system. It, it was, in, in, in some respects, you could even call it an extended employment contract. But uh, some of the bond servants were thinking, well, if I become a Christian, then what I could do is I could not only get, uh, keep my money, but also be released from my commitment of serving. Uh, who gave me the money? And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. If you get an opportunity to be released from your commitment, certainly take it. And Paul even argues in, in, his, uh, in the letter to Philemon, he argues to Philemon, I know Onesimus owes you, your bondservant, I know he owes you, let him go. He's a brother in Christ now, let him go. He, so he makes that argument, but he also understands that Philemon has a right to not let him go. Um, but Jews wanted this also. That they wanted, get this, Jews, some Jews in Corinth were coming to Christ because they were hoping it would make them non-Jewish. This, this is the whole uncircum, or, you know, removing the marks of circumcision thing. Okay? So the way they thought that, that they could do that was by coming to Jesus rather than, here you go, this was a thing in the first and second century BC and the first century AD. This was a thing in the Mediterranean where many Jews wanted to remove the, the marks of circumcision. It was talked about in 1 Maccabees chapter 2. Go and read it. If you have a Catholic Bible, you can read it tonight. Uh, you can look it up on the internet, 1 Maccabees chapter 2, and you can see that even in the 2nd and 1st century B.C., uh, Jews were wishing to remove the marks, of, the marks of circumcision. And the first question, of course, that we should all have is, well, how does anybody know? Okay, well, here's why they know. Um, we haven't quite gotten here in the 21st century. It's possible that we could be moving there in, at LA Fitness and, and Anytime Fitness and all of these different places. But um, in the ancient Mediterranean world, they had gymnasiums. They had fitness centers. And you would become a member of a fitness center if you were a man. You couldn't go there if you were a woman. Only men got to go to these gymnasiums where people would go and they would work out and they would play games and all this. But get this, you did this naked. You took off all your clothes and you worked out naked. Now this is just weird stuff. People were weird back then, okay? They're really normal now. They were weird back then, okay? So they would work out naked. So you'd, ha so you'd have all these uh, Greco-Roman people in there and the Jews would walk in and they were circumcised and everybody would start mocking them and teasing them, and they got tired of it, so they wanted to remove the marks of circumcision. So I got really interested in this, I don't know why, several years ago, and I started researching this. How would they do this, okay? Get this. Think of the irony of this. These are Jewish men. They came up with this ancient, prehistoric, awful surgical procedure where they were grafting skin from pigs and sewing it on the men. Okay, now get the, yeah, I know, but get the, okay, here you go. They're Jewish, and they're doing this with pigs. Do you see how crazy this is? But this is how badly they wanted to remove the marks of circumcision. So Paul's saying, why are you involved in any of this stuff? You're in Christ now. Your identity is not in your ethnicity, it's not in your race, it's not in your economic status, it's not in your class, it's in none of those things, okay? You are a Christian who happens to be Jewish. You're not a Jewish Christian. You see the difference there? Okay. So this is, this is, the, the, this is the conversation that he's, that he's having, okay? Uh, there was lots of anti-Semitism anti in the 2nd and 1st century B.C. and the 1st century A.D., just, just like there is today, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, anyway, there are many more examples. By the way, every time I read this, if you're a Seinfeld fan, I think about uh, Dr. Watley, who became Jewish just so he could tell Jewish jokes. I don't know if you ever saw that <laughs> episode in Seinfeld, but yeah, I think about that. The point is that the, the Corinthians were trying hard to use Christ 
for purposes beyond the gospel. Paul's saying if you were a Caucasian lower middle class laborer before you became a Christian, that's who you are as a Christian until God moves in your life. Okay? Or not. Your identity is in Christ, not your ethnicity, not your vocation, not your socioeconomic situation. But I would also say that there's a little bit more to it than just those items, especially today. This also applies today. Um, Larry Osborne has written a, a lot about this in this context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay? It's the problem in the church of gift envy and gift lording. Gift envy and gift lording. So if you read 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, you find out that uh, there are some people that have certain gifts that tend to lord their gifts over others that don't have those gifts. And there are also some people who don't feel uh, gifted in the way that uh, they would like to, that, that seems more important than others, and so then they don't really feel like they're a part of the body. And Paul makes the argument that you're all a part of the body, okay? I, I, I know that um, an, an elbow is not as sexy as eyes or ears or a nose. Right? Sexy meaning useful, the way some people might think, okay? But here you go. Try to live your life without elbows. Just try. The elbows are kind of in the background, not very sexy, not very interesting, but try to live your life without elbows. You know what? You would never be able to feed yourself, okay? Unless you were in a pie-eating contest. That'd be the only way you could do it, okay? Elbows are really important, all right? So Paul makes that, uh, makes that argument, but the way we in the Christian, extended Christian church have elevated gifted, giftedness into a type of social class is a huge problem in the American church. It just is. Um, Larry Osborne writes four chapters about this in his book, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, where he talks about gift envy and he talks about gift passion and he talks about gift lording. And, 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 he, and he talks about those people that come into a church and they say, look, my gift is this. So everybody else should also have this gift because that's the most important gift. I want everybody to be gifted in this way. Okay, well, if everybody's gifted in one way, Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, if everybody's gifted in this one way, then you're not a body. He says, if the whole church were an eye, where's the sense of hearing? If the whole church were an ear, where's the sense of smell? Okay, we, we need everybody we need, because we're a body. We need all the gifts. This is second of all, this is also about contentment. Paul makes this argument because it's also about contentment. People using Christianity uh, to, to, to change their life in a way that they think is going to make them uh, uh, more satisfied, and that's not necessarily going to happen. Okay, I've talked about this many, many times. As I've just gone through life, and especially teaching at, in the Maricopa County Community College system and interacting with students all the time, I've, I believe that there are four major categories where people are discontent with their life. They're unhappy, they're discontent with who they are, they're discontent with where they are, they're discontent with what they're doing, and they're discontent with who they're with. Okay? And social media has only exacerbated these problems. Okay? We look on social media and then we get depressed because we're not those people. Okay? Just you got to. I mentioned this Sunday. You know, everybody else's spouse is like the social media spouse, and you're stuck living with reality. Okay, they are too. They're just not showing you that reality. Okay. Gee, I wish I was LeBron James until this year. Now, now nobody wishes they're LeBron James anymore. Boy, I'm just that's so. I, the Suns are never going to win the NBA championship. I just want to say that again and go on record again. But it's so fun that the Lakers aren't going to win it this year either. That, that gives me a lot of happiness. Um, we're discontent with where we are. Every time I travel, people talk about how they wish they lived in Phoenix and how lucky I am. And I'm traveling because I want to get out of Phoenix. Okay? I we're never happy where we are. We think that if we're, all our problems are going to be solved if we move to Nashville or Idaho or Montana or wherever it is. Those are all the hot spots now in Charlotte. Okay, the problem is, is that you're going to have problems there too because you're going there. All right? So there are going to be problems there because you're also going to be... We're unhappy with who we're with. We've always got one eye on who we're with, but also one eye on who we could be with, and that is a source of discontentment. 
as well. And then everybody's unhappy with their job and what they're doing. Everybody's looking for something better. You know, I know people who are making um, mid six figures and they're just miserable. And they're sure that if they had done something else, they would have been happy. You know, it's like, well, you got to bloom where you're planted. Anyway, planted. Anyway, um, Paul says this is also about contentment. It's about being able to say, I'm in Christ now. That's where I find my contentment. That's where I find my fulfillment. That's where I find my joy. And then also third, um, there's this value and hierarchy of moral codes. You know, people have these personal and corporate moral codes and the Jews have the law and everybody's trying to get everybody else to, to go along with their moral code and their law. And he's coming along going, no, this is all about Christ now. You gotta drop the moral codes, you gotta drop the law, you gotta be focused on Christ. So the point is in Christ. None of these things matter more than Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. None of them. The law, personal moral codes, the affirmation of others, he talks about that. Uh, ethnicity, the social comparison process, which I talked about Sunday. None of this counts for anything. And one last thing, and then we'll stop here. Verse 23, I want to reread it. He writes, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So what Paul means here is, uh, by writing, do not become a bondservant or a slave of men, is not a reference to the economic system of slavery in the first century Mediterranean world. It's a reference to what I just talked about. Becoming a slave to the social comparison process. Becoming a, a slave to the affirmation of others. When he, and then he writes, you were bought with a price. Paul is saying Jesus gave his life so that you no longer have to worry about the approval of others and how you stack up against them. And he writes about that, of course, in Galatians 6. He says, find your identity and your giftedness in one place, and that is Jesus. So that's where we'll pick up next week as we'll start at verse 25, and we'll wrap up 7 and get into 8. Oh, I should pray. I didn't do that a couple weeks ago, and it was really awkward. So let me close by praying, okay? Uh, Father God, we're grateful for your word and its truth, and we're thankful for how your spirit filled and led Paul to write the things that he did and, and how you've given us now tools today to be able to understand what he's written so we can apply it to our lives. Um, if nothing else, my prayer is that what we get out of uh, the words that Paul writes is that Jesus is everything and we need to follow him and be in him. So help us to do that. Give us the courage to live that life. God, we pray for this weekend, for Resurrection Weekend. We pray for everything that's going on, um, but especially for these baptisms that are going to take place Sunday morning. What a great testimony and a great celebration, and I pray it'll be a great time of, of uh, giving you the glory for the celebration that we can have. Pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.